Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and former CIA analyst who assesses the preconditions necessary for peace talks to succeed in ending Russia's war in Ukraine. Kathy Kelly, a lifelong nonviolence activist who examines the ongoing war and humanitarian crisis in Yemen, links with the war in Ukraine, and action being taken by Congress to end U.S. involvement. And Ted Glick, co-founder of the group Beyond Extreme Energy, who talks about pushing back against the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's rubber stamp approval of virtually all fossil fuel projects in the U.S. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Colombia appears ready to join another pink tide emerging across Latin America with the election of progressive candidates Gabriel Boric in Chile and Pedro Castillo in Peru. These leaders are part of a new generation of leftists embracing the issues of climate change, gender equality, and the rights of indigenous people, in addition to traditional progressive campaigns against inequality and poverty. Former Bogota Mayor Gustavo Petro, a member of the M-19 guerrilla movement, is the front-runner for Colombia's May 29th presidential election. During the party primaries, Petro won 4.5 million votes, twice the number of ballots cast for right-wing candidate and former Medellin mayor Federico Gutierrez. Gutierrez has close ties to former President Alberto Uribe, the nation's dominant political force over the last 20 years. Petro, if elected, would be Colombia's first leftist president and could make a clean break from his country's right-wing policies by curtailing oil and gas drilling, adopting a Green New Deal, and implementing Colombia's stalled peace process, which had increased levels of violence across the country. Petro, who lost the 2018 presidential election to right-wing candidate Ivan Duque by eight points, named Afro-Colombian environmental defender Francia Marquez to be his vice presidential running mate. Marquez won the 2018 Goldman Environmental Prize for her campaign to stop illegal gold mining in her native province in southwest Colombia. Months before Russia invaded Ukraine, food aid was cut off in Yemen, now the world's worst humanitarian crisis and ongoing civil war. Over the last year, the crisis in Yemen has deteriorated, despite a promise by President Joe Biden to end the war between a Saudi Arabian-led coalition and Houthi rebels who control much of the country. According to The Intercept, the Biden administration has not applied the necessary pressure on the Saudis to end a fuel embargo targeting Yemen that would ease hunger in the poor Middle Eastern nation. Because wheat and grain supplies from Ukraine and Russia are dwindling and farmers are delaying planting new crops, food prices are spiking across North Africa and the Middle East. In early March, the United Nations declared Yemen to be in a chronic state of emergency, with the risk of famine spreading across the nation, divided by the U.S.-backed Saudi and United Arab Emirates-led war. 
The World Food Program estimates half of all the country's children under five years of age, about 2.3 million, are at risk of acute malnutrition, with 400,000 at risk of dying if they don't receive treatment. Redlining was outlawed in the late 1960s, but its legacy lives on, with decades of people of color in America's urban centers exposed to dangerous levels of air pollution and high particulate matter. A new national study concludes that 45 million people breathe dirty air today due to federal decisions in the 1930s to implement discriminatory redlining of immigrant and black neighborhoods. Because these communities were deemed undesirable at the time, less expensive real estate attracted industrial plants and the building routes of the U.S. interstate highway system. According to a study published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology Letters, the biggest impact of redlining on air pollution was in Los Angeles, Atlanta, Chicago, and Newark, New Jersey. While air quality has improved in recent decades, poor air quality has disproportionately affected the health of African American and Latino communities. Lead author Harley Lane, a graduate student in environmental and civil engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, said cities are tied to patterns of pollution present for over 80 years. Formerly redlined communities also suffer from excessive urban heat zones, sparse tree canopy, and few open green spaces. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine entered its second month, peace talks between Russian and Ukrainian representatives in Turkey on March 29th appeared to make progress. Russia's deputy defense minister said Moscow would drastically reduce its military presence near the capital of Kiev and the northern city of Cherniv. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, had previously said he was willing to discuss his nation's neutrality, quitting his effort to join NATO as well as negotiating the status of Crimea and the Donbass region. But Zelensky said any concessions made during talks would be put to a vote in a national referendum after the withdrawal of Russian troops. As U.S. President Joe Biden was ending a four-day trip to Europe to maintain unity in the NATO alliance and visit with Ukrainian refugees in Poland, he delivered a speech condemning Russian President Putin and off-script said, Quote, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, unquote. While White House staff attempted to retract the statement, Biden later said he was expressing his outrage, but not making an official policy change. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst. Here he assesses the preconditions necessary for peace talks to succeed in ending Russia's war in Ukraine. So now you have uh, Joe Biden referring to uh, Putin as a war criminal, uh, as a monster, you know, barbaric acts. And now this latest one, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. And it certainly sounds like it's what Putin uh, is using to warn his own people 
and he, I think, has been very successful with in terms of his domestic information warfare, not his international information warfare. But I think he has most of the Russian people believing that the United States is responsible for this war. The United States was trying to repair its relationship with the European states that had been compromised by Donald Trump, that the United States was trying to separate Russia and China, which have their closest bilateral relationship uh, in their history. And if this war in Ukraine is ever going to be settled in some acceptable way, I think Biden will have to be talking to Vladimir Putin. So if you convince Putin that uh, you are interested in regime change, and no matter what we say now, and given our history of regime change and our failures in terms of regime change, think of Iran and Guatemala and Chile and Libya and Iraq. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. This sounds like the United States is upping the ante in terms of its treatment of Vladimir Putin. So it was unfortunate. It was a spontaneous remark that he made at the end of this nearly 30-minute speech. It was obviously influenced by the terrible tragedy that he witnessed in being in, in Poland and talking to the various uh, refugees and hearing their stories, keeping in mind the wanton destruction that Putin is carrying out in Ukraine. I mean, the man is a war criminal. I don't think there's any uh, question about that. But I don't think this is what Joe Biden should be saying in the public arena. Now, how do you gauge the chances for a negotiated end to this war in Ukraine given that uh, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has signaled that he's open to make concessions to Russian demands for Ukraine's declaration of neutrality and dropping its quest to join NATO. He's also said he's open to negotiations over the status of the Donbass region. There's a question about U.S. support for these negotiations, but what has to happen, in your view, to end this war at a negotiating table? talks that are taking place in Istanbul because Turkish President Erdogan has played an active role uh, in trying to get mediation or in some uh, compromise. I don't think that's where Putin is uh, at this point. And what Zelensky has offered thus far in terms of Ukrainian neutrality and uh, no membership in NATO, I don't think that's sufficient for Putin to convince himself, uh, let alone his, his own people, that they've uh, met their objectives, that they can justify the war and they can satisfy to themselves that this incredible effort with all of these losses that they're facing, particularly in terms of uh, armored vehicles, personnel carriers, tanks, was worth it. So what they appear to be doing is moving away from the idea that they can take on a city like Kiev, given the uh, Ukrainian resistance, but they are trying to build this land bridge and they virtually succeeded uh, between the Donbass and Odessa. And we haven't seen the beginning of the attack on Odessa yet. But I think what they're trying to do in the second phase is essentially make Ukraine a landlocked country. They would take away access to the Sea of Azov, access to uh, the Black Sea. Uh, Ukraine is a major export country, particularly of wheat and other uh, food items that are so important in places like the Middle East and in Africa. Russia is the leading grain exporter in the world. Ukraine is about the fourth or fifth uh, leading exporter in the world. And this would have a huge economic cost if they were to lose the access to the sea. What I think Zelensky is talking about without creating a, an exact parallel comparison is is sort of what's uh, in northern Iraq in terms of the Kurdish section of the country. 
where you have essentially a Kurdistan regional government with their own military, their own schools, their own services, their own policies. And I think what Zelensky is pointing to is allowing a referendum in the Donbass to allow this to take place. And he'll honor the vote of what are mainly ethnic Russians in the, in the Donbass. But I, again, I think Putin wants more than that. That was Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst. Find more analysis and commentary on the chances for a peaceful settlement of the Ukraine war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. While the world's attention is focused on the brutal war in Ukraine that followed Russia's February 24th invasion, another conflict in humanitarian crisis is being largely ignored by global media outlets. The war in Yemen, the world's poorest nation, is now entering its eighth year of conflict. Between indiscriminate bombing by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, a blockade of food, fuel, and medicine, and rampant disease, more than 200,000 Yemenis have lost their lives, with at least 17.4 million people, more than half of the country's population now facing famine. The UN estimated last fall that the Yemen death toll could rise to 377,000 people. Often viewed as a proxy fight between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Iran, the oil-rich monarchies intervened in Yemen after Houthi rebels, seen as protectors of the Shia Muslim minority, seized control of large portions of Yemen in September 2014, including the capital, Sana'a. When elected president, Joe Biden said he would work to end the war in Yemen, but he continues to sell arms to the Saudis in UAE used in their war. The sanctions imposed on Russia after its Ukraine invasion have dramatically increased the price of food and fuel, making the situation in Yemen more dire. Your reporter spoke with Kathy Kelly, a lifelong nonviolence activist and co-founder of the group Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Here she discusses the crisis in Yemen and members of Congress now working to end U.S. involvement in the war. This is the eighth year and, you know, precisely the kind of coverage that's been devoted to suffering, displacement, people plunged into refugee status, people orphaned, people bereaved, people maimed, precisely that kind of empathetic coverage has never really been focused on Yemen over the eight years of a, a hideous, bludgeoning, terrible war in which um, the U.N. estimates that 377,000 people have died. Now, people may say, well, why? Why is there a war in Yemen? Well, Yemen is strategically located. It's right at the point in the Bab al-Mandab, which could become like a choking point for the passage of ships carrying fuel. So it's a very strategic location. As this war has gone on, there have been consistent atrocities committed through airborne strikes that have wrecked, decimated, devastated Yemen's infrastructure, for one thing. And I think that's so important to realize because when you bomb the food production sites and the sewage and sanitation facilities and the electrical facilities and the fisheries and the roadways, then the infrastructure is so non-functioning that more children in the future are sure to become diseased, malnourished, 
And with the combinations of not enough food and no clean water and hospitals that have also been bombed, they can't survive. So it's it's just a guaranteed ongoing suffering paid for in terms of who pays the price by children. And you wonder, do we ever learn to ban child sacrifice? So, you know, parents who've been displaced three and four and five times over in Yemen could surely identify with those seeking refuge from Ukraine. But now we see the huge differences because, you know, there's not a major refugee camp in all of Poland. Homes have swung open the doors and people have been welcomed. Now, I should qualify that brown and black people living in Ukraine, some of them, Yemenis, have not been similarly welcomed. And so President Biden campaigned saying, no, no, I'm going to stop arming the Saudis for their offensive war. But then he said, but I'll let them keep getting defensive weapons. And so actually there's been no significant stopping of the importation of U.S. weapons into Saudi Arabia, the U.S. willingness to maintain their airplanes, to uh, send them spare parts for their airplanes. And now, with the sanctions against Russia, the United States wants Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to free up some oil, a lot of oil, to kind of make up for what's not coming from Russia. And the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia have made a quid pro quo. If you want us to produce more oil, you have to send us more weapons so that we can attack people in Yemen. It's very cruel. I would like you to comment, Kathy, on measures that are being proposed in the U.S. Congress to rein in the United States' support and assistance to Saudi Arabia and the UAE in prosecuting this war in Yemen. Tell us about that, if you would. Well, there are two Congress people, Pramila Jayapal and Peter DeFazio, both Democrats, who have said that they are going to introduce a bill that would be considered the Yemen War Powers Act. Right now, the Congress has never authorized the United States to support this war and uh, this blockade against Yemen. It's been a presidential decision. And so a War Powers Act would give the Congress a chance to weigh in. And in the past, there was a joint resolution. Senators and Congress people together all voted and said, stop. We want the capacity as a Senate and Congress to stop the flow of weapons to Saudi Arabia and the coalition it leads, which includes the UAE and Bahrain and Egypt and uh, Sudan, other countries that are in a nine-country coalition. Well, President Trump vetoed that. Now, it to me is very, very sad that in all the time which has elapsed since President Trump vetoed that resolution, they still haven't come up with a new resolution. Why not? You know, the, the, the blockade hasn't been lifted. The famine conditions are still being predicted by the United Nations. Well, now Joe Biden might be put on the spot if by any chance— uh, there can be a joint Senate congressional resolution saying to Joe Biden, we want to force you to enact your campaign pledge and stop the horrible support for what the Saudis are doing to innocent people in Yemen. Well, um, you know, I think average ordinary people are going to have to push their Congress people and their senators to take that step. 
But it's not unthinkable. And then Joe Biden would have to decide, am I going to veto that, which I think uh, in many ways he would not want to do because the despotic actions of Mohammed bin Salman have been so consistent in the cruelty of the UAE. And I would mention Bahrain as well. That was Kathy Kelly, a lifelong nonviolence activist who serves as board president of the group World Beyond War. Find more analysis and commentary on ending the war in Yemen by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The world's climate scientists continue to issue dire reports about the climate catastrophe awaiting the world if we don't take immediate and far-reaching action to cut carbon emissions 50% by the year 2030 and move to net zero by 2050. But now the war in Ukraine is pushing governments in the opposite direction, ramping up production of coal, oil, and especially liquefied natural gas, or LNG to replace the fuels that Russia currently sells to Europe. Producing LNG is itself an incredibly energy-intensive process, requiring the gas to be converted to a liquid and transported to where it will be converted back to gas. In addition, the war in Ukraine is greatly increasing climate emissions from tanks and planes on both sides that are locked in battle. Ted Glick is co-founder of the group Beyond Extreme Energy, that's focused for the past eight years on pushing the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, to stop rubber-stamping approval for all fossil fuel projects that come before it, and switch to promoting renewable energy. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus, a member of BXE, spoke with Glick about some recent actions taken by FERC, both positive and negative, and how listeners can get involved in the campaign to stop FERC's blanket approval of fossil fuel projects. The big story right now, as far as FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, is that this is the agency that makes decisions about whether or not the methane gas industry expands or not. You know, the frack gas industry, whether they expand new pipelines, new export terminals, etc. And there is a major push underway led by Joe Manchin, Republicans in the Senate, other Democrats, other corporate Democrats um, to get the White House um, to move to dramatically ramp up the production of gas, of frack gas, methane gas, and the expansion of export terminals to ship gas allegedly over to Europe. But you can be absolutely certain that if they get this, they are going to ship it anywhere in the world where they can make the most money, because that's what the gas industry has been about for this whole decade creating an export gas industry because the prices of gas um, have been higher in Asia and in Europe than they've been in the United States. And that's what they've been pursuing. And they're not going to stop doing that if the Biden administration um, and people in Congress who should know better uh, allow this to happen. I wanted to back up a little and talk about some good news that lasted for about a month. When the Democratic majority in FERC, the three out of the five commissioners led by, you know, the chair, Richard Glick, no relation to you, made some decisions that actually were, were very promising. And if they were to stay 
in effect, it could actually put a real damper on some of the things you were just talking about. Tell us what happened at their regularly scheduled February meeting. Yes, I think it was February 17th. Uh, they made a decision by a three to two majority, three Democrats voting for it, two, vote, two Republicans voting against it, that they were going to have a new policy when it came to making decisions about gas industry expansion, which is one of the things that FERC is assigned to do by Congress. And they've been a rubber stamp literally for 20 years to give the gas industry almost every single expansion project they want. They changed that policy. They said that now when a pipeline company says they want to build a pipeline or they want to build an export terminal or a storage terminal, build compressor stations that push the gas along through pipelines, that it's not enough for the pipeline company to have a contract with a gas supplier, you know, a company that brings the gas out of the ground and then would bring it to the pipeline. That's not enough. And that's basically what they've been using as, as the, the, the reason for why they give permits. Now, what's necessary is that FERC will look at impacts on landowners whose land is going to be taken for a pipeline, uh, impacts on local communities where the, this infrastructure would be built, particularly from an environmental justice lens in terms of people of color and low-income people, uh, and also very much the issue of, of climate change, of the climate crisis. There have been a number, there's been a, four, at least four major court decisions in, in court of appeals that have essentially told FERC that they need to take seriously the climate impacts of this infrastructure. Uh, and that's one of the things that pushed them um, to make this decision, that, that legally the courts are telling them you have to take this issue much more seriously. So it was a good development. The problem is that a month later, because of all this pressure with the Ukraine war, on March 24th at their last meeting, they decided to suspend that decision to give stakeholders more time for input. And in Richard Glick, the chair, who's no relation to me, by the way, when he said that and said that he would be voting um, to suspend the decision until there's more input, he explicitly talked about meetings that he's had with pipeline companies and the gas industry um, as a, a main reason why it's being suspended. So it's very disturbing. It's very concerning. Um, yeah, there's a need for FERC to hear from a lot of people right now. Really, people should write to FERC. The specifics of the dockets, as they're called, the docket numbers for, for this, the, these new policy decisions that they made um, are PL18-1 and PL21-3. And that's a little technical. That's the way FERC works. But if people can uh, write those down um, and contact FERC, go to their website, FERC.gov, um, or just write them a letter. Write them a letter. You know, they, they should be flooded. They should be hearing from people all over the country uh, that we don't want the war in Ukraine be used as, as an excuse to just accelerate the climate crisis through the expansion of the gas industry. That was Ted Glick, co-founder of the group Beyond Extreme Energy and author of the book 21st Century Revolution through higher love, racial justice, and democratic cooperation. Learn more about the group's work by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.